And they actually advised me, as far as if I'm remembering back, they advised me to go work at a gym in the area and get sales experience selling gym membership. Right, go, go work at a gym for a year. Go get experience selling gym memberships. Like, here's a number. I know a guy. He'll hire you. And I just, I think I was too impatient for that. So I was like, no, I can, I'm just going to go get my license. Like I can start now. And I just kind of didn't take no for an answer and kept showing up for the office. And, and in that time though, I would say I said yes to everything. It could have been an open house in the middle of nowhere. It could have been delivering flyers at midnight. I said yes to everything because I wanted to prove I was a hard worker. I was reliable. I was accountable. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, I'm here today with Dennis Folk with Terrafin Brokerage. He's up in the Pacific Northwest near Tacoma. And so we're going to be bringing you guys some information today about what it was like to be in the market in 2006 and beyond, what it's like to work with investors, some big deals, some crazy deals. And as always, Dennis, take us in. What is the craziest experience you've had so far in real estate? That was a tough question, um, but what I would probably come up with is one. It was a, it, nevertheless very unique for us, but it was a it was KB Homes. They are a nationwide builder with around a twelve billion dollar balance sheet. We had the opportunity to work with them when they first came to the Pacific Northwest. So we sold them their very first project in the Pacific Northwest. It was a ninety six lot community, and the, the sale price was about twelve million. So I don't know how crazy it was, but in terms of a learning experience for us, and it certainly helped up our game and introduced us to a lot of people. And we couldn't say better things about them as a company because sometimes large companies like that, you just don't know how it's going to go and, and how you're going to feel at the end of it. So they were uh, the utmost professionals and we just, we really enjoyed working with them. So uh, yeah, we were glad to have that opportunity and we certainly learned a lot from that experience. So essentially, let's talk about that. So you were selling land to them, essentially, for them to yeah. build on. Where was it at yeah. in the process? Was it entitled, paper lots? So it was actually pretty, it was a pretty crazy one. It was a development called Falling Water. This was like one of the final phases of that development. And through a process of like investors and foreclosures and lawsuits, the owner of the project was actually a utility company out of Australia. What? And so it, yeah, that's how crazy it was. It was owned by a utility company in Australia who was not a land developer. It was just like a, an asset they held and somehow ended up with through a series of foreclosures, but they were not land developers by nature. And they had sat on this, they had developed a project and sat on it because I think they didn't know what to do with it. And they had gone through a series of like kind of leadership changes at their company. And they're a public company in Singapore and Australia. And so anyway, they didn't know what to do with it and they just sat on it. And when they sat on it, they probably like two and a half times the value of it by just doing nothing. And it's just vacant land. So it had, you know, there's very little maintenance. Um, they may have had to pay some HOA dues in that project, even though there's no houses. So we got a lead on that land through an architect we work with. And I was meeting with a good friend of mine who is the builder rep for a local title company called Chicago Title. Uh, Corey Prutzman is his name. And he said, hey, a good friend of mine is now going to be the new division president for KB Home in the Pacific Northwest. He needs lots in a bad way. You got th this lead on these lots. If you think that you can pull this off, meet with meet with this gentleman and get it done. This thing took like nine months to close. You're dealing with people in Singapore. You're dealing with people in Australia. You're dealing with all kinds of people you're never going to encounter again. Um, but it was a lot of fun. Um, the largest transaction by a mile we've ever done at $12 million. Uh, Our average sell price right as of today is probably in, in the mid-700s. So, um, but a lot of fun. Met a lot of cool people doing it. 
was really happy to get it across the finish line because so many times it felt like it was, you know. And once those transactions get to a certain point, the agents actually aren't terribly involved. It's all handled by attorneys. And so, but you still get to be a part of the process and learn. And so that was, if I had to think of a, a crazier one or certainly a more unique one, that would be it. I really want to go into this because, I mean, I think there's a lot of lessons that can be unpacked from this. I mean, first of all, how did you track these people down? What were the conversations like at the beginning? And I know the attorneys take over eventually, but there's a, probably yeah. a lot of negotiation and deal structuring that happens on your end. But let's start with the KB side. How did you get KB as a client? So KB Home, which so there's a couple of rare things with that. But again, that came from me talking to the builder rep at Chicago Title. And wow. he said, hey, I've been in contact with this gentleman who's been hired to be the division president for a new division for KB Home in the Pacific Northwest. And to get a new division going, they need lots and they need, you know, they probably need a good three, four projects, you know, right away, right out of the gate so they can start building. Um, and it was kind of really cool working with him because he had no office yet. And he's working out of a laptop, like in his pickup truck, and he's a division president for this company. So it was just, it was unique to see that side of it. Um, and yeah, just going through it and, um, they were just great people to work with. Really, the more challenging part was on the seller side because the seller had so many channels of people and so many representatives and so many people sort of calling the shots or saying they were calling shots when they weren't really calling the shots, even saying different things from what their attorneys were saying. Um, but yeah, it was they were a great company to work with. They were the one, also what, what made that unique for us was the seller would not pay a commission. They, from day one, it was like one of the first things out of their mouth. Hey, yeah, you can you can bring us an offer. We're not paying you anything. Hmm. And KB Home said, hey, we'll pay you. And so it was uh, really interesting. And we, But they never told us what. They just said, hey, we're going to take care of you. And that's kind of scary on our end because we don't work a lot with public home builders. And so and uh, anyhow, so they kept saying, hey, we'll pay you. We'll take care of you. And at the very end of it, I remember the division president called me. He goes, we're going to take care of you. And I go, awesome. Yeah, I'm ready for it. What do you got? Yeah. And he's going to be one and a half percent off the 12 million. And so we did have to split that with the, the agent that the, uh, the seller had in place kind of on their end. So, um, so are you getting a full commission? No, but it was a, a really fun experience and, and certainly a much larger transaction and commission than we typically are able to work with. Well, and first of all, kudos to you for building the relationships with the title company and the architects that landed this deal. I think that's a lesson for agents and investors right alone is like, if you have the right relationships, these deals can present, present themselves in ways that they wouldn't. So, right. So leverage, yeah. the, leverage those relationships. And then second of all, too, like these deals, even if you don't make a ton of commission on them can lead to even bigger deals and more consistently doing big deals. Absolutely. Yeah, what, absolutely. What's been the process since this deal's happened? So that, well, it was kind of funny. They, um, and to back up a little bit too, one thing you mentioned about kind of the odd way things to come together, I actually learned of the project and the potential availability of the lots by being at a, an architect who was a friend of mine. We had some mutual clients. I was at his office and another agent walked in and the architect says, hey, I think you should talk to this guy. I heard he has 96 lots in Falling Water, which is the name of the community. And that's how I met him just sort of randomly. And he says, yeah, I've got him. I can get the seller to sign on him. And that's what prompted me to then start to search for a buyer. Um, since that project, so where we really make our money or what keeps us going is selling home builders, building lots. Because then what happens is we are able to sell the homes in those communities. That's what keeps our listing count up. That's what keeps people busy. That's our main source of revenue. So we shy away from large builders like KB Home or public home builders because they have their own real estate companies. 
in this situation, they were so new to the Pacific Northwest that I kept kind of rallying or jockeying, like, hey, you don't have an in-house sales team set up yet. Let us handle it until you do. So that didn't happen, which is okay, because they never promised it. But I was actually able to get a good friend of mine, the sales manager position there, and he's been there ever since, because this was October of 2018. So it was really cool to see that happen, um, to see him get lined up. And he really enjoys that job, and he's a perfect fit for it. So, um, mm. yeah, we weren't able to sell the actual homes. We were only involved in the land acquisition side of that one, but... Yeah. Well, very, very cool. But I mean, obviously it's something that's produced some real opportunity for you and you got to help someone out that you know, which is really, really cool. So Absolutely. let's talk about, do you as the brokerage, like you personally go out and find the land or is it that you're t training your agents to go and hunt or? We've gotten to the point where we're probably, we're too big for it all to be done by me. Um, before we were a standalone brokerage, we were a team at another brokerage and we were about 12 brokers total or 12 people total, I should say, like maybe a couple of staff members and then about 12 people total. At that point, it was probably me or actually, we actually had our own land acquisition person for a couple of years that would find the land, you make the relationship with the developer, you'd find the land, you'd sell it to a home builder. And then once the development's done and the permitting's done, they get a model home built, then we start working on sales. But now we've gotten to the point where we're a bit larger and I'm not involved in, you know, a fair amount of the projects our office is doing. I might be able to provide guidance and help, you know, with certain aspects of it. Um, so the answer is today, no. Today, a lot of our, luckily, a lot of our home builders, if we do a good job, you, they'll continue to use you on future projects, even though you didn't bring them that, that land from the beginning. So a lot of times bringing them the land sort of just helps either keep a relationship strong or open up a new relationship from our standpoint. How do you view bro, uh, builder relationships? Do you want as many as possible? Do you want to go crazy deep on a couple? Um, how we view them. So first off, it's really tough to go crazy because there's just what, what happened back here where we're at in Pacific Northwest. When the last recession hit, we had one public home builder in town. It was DR Horton. And now I want to say we have 12. And what happens, that knocks out a lot of mom pa home builders, and that's our opportunity to list with what we call a regional home builder. And so the, now that there's so many public home builders, they don't need us. They have, they have really good land acquisition teams, and they don't really need us, especially not on the sales side. So, so of course, we would go as, as big as we can possibly handle or do, but you're always kind of constrained, you know, how many projects can you really line up and how much can you, you know, really take on. So there's, this, there's no limit from our standpoint. Um, and every builder is a little bit different. Some are going to, they're not, most large home builders are probably not going to pay a full commission. Um, they're probably really going to want you to shoot for in-house deals. That's where you're covering both sides of the transaction. And when that's the case, they want to pay an even smaller commission. And every builder is different. They're all animals uh, from our standpoint. They all can be a bit challenging, but they all do things a little bit differently. Some will have their own in-house marketing. Some will rely on us for 100% of marketing. And sometimes it's a combination, but um, yeah, every one of them is a bit different. We're, we're pretty fortunate to have to have that. It keeps our listing count up and keeps a lot of people busy. So you got in the game in 2006 and mm -hmm. obviously right as the market was ready to fall apart. So you went through, you know, the crash and such. Was it like a process where you went into investments and short sale type of thing in, in the crash and then and then moved into building as things got better? Yeah, I can kind of walk you through that. So in 2006, I was 19 years old. It the the one of the most important things I try to tell people, it took me four and a half years to where real estate was my full-time career. I waited tables for four and a half years. And what, what full-time really meant to me, because I was putting in full-time hours. So it wasn't like I was just doing it whenever I felt like I was working every day, but the market was you know rapidly declining at that point in time. But yeah, so 
four and a half years and full time to me meant I could predictably close one house a month. And so that was when I got to maybe age 24, 25, I could predictably close one house a month. So I was able to stop waiting tables. But during that first four and a half years, what I was almost ex not exclusively, but almost ex exclusively doing was sitting sites for home builders. So I didn't have the listings, but I was sitting the sites and I was doing the open houses. And when I was that young, I was subject to like the worst communities they had, right? Because I was so young and I didn't have the experience. So I was sitting these communities out in the middle of nowhere. And some of these communities, you wouldn't have a single person come in all week. And you could sometimes hear a pin drop. It, it got, it drove me crazy sometimes. And the market had gotten so bad that you, so I remember sometimes you literally wondered if like the bank was going to come take that model home because you knew things had gotten really bad. And I remember there were certain times where I was, you know, I'd be there all summer long and the Pacific Northwest, you really value your summers because you don't really, you know, it's, it's definitely it's a beautiful up there. Yeah. Yeah. So we value the summer. So it can be a long winter. But I remember during the summers, I would have all kinds of friends and be like, dude, what are you doing, man? Like we have a boat, like we have like, you know, a cooler full of beer, like get out here, man. What are you doing? Nobody's coming to that community. Right. But I wouldn't do it. I would stay there and say, no, I've made a commitment to the listing agent. I've made a commitment to the builder. I'm not going to do that to them. But one thing dawned on me relatively quick, like within that first couple of years that I was being used as leverage by the listing agent. I'm not saying that in a bad way, but I would look at it and go, well, the listing agent maybe has four of these communities or has, or has five of these communities. So he has four or five of me sitting at these different communities and he's on the golf course. So I'm leverage. He's using me as a leverage and a part of his business. And I realized I was on the wrong end of it. So that's when I started to learn. I was like, man, how do you get on the other end of it? Because I don't really enjoy doing the open houses. So anyway, that's when things started to kind of dawn on me. You mentioned investors. In like 2010. Before we go to and, investors, I, I want to tap into this because I think this could be really valuable. So it was very important to you to be committed to what you had stated to the builders, absolutely. which is such a great attribute. It's so refreshing to hear this, but I'd like to know why is that commitment so important to you? I think I just felt like my reputation was on the line. And if I said I was going to do something, I was going to do everything in my power to do it. And I also kind of, to some degree, had a chip on my shoulder and wanted to prove that I could sell those houses. You know, they, that they let, they gave the opportunity to the right person that I could make something happen. Even if I couldn't bring them a perfect offer, I'd bring them some kind of offer. Um, so I think it was just pride and I, and I didn't want to look like a flake. And I, you know, I felt like they had given me an opportunity. So I wanted to repay that favor. So that was important to me to not flake out. Because there's a lot of people that did flake out. When the market got slow, they're like, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. But I kept doing it because I could wait tables at night. And so I had enough, you know, money coming in for gas money and to like do my dry cleaning and stuff like that. So, so I didn't have a, beyond selfishness, I didn't have a great reason to, to quit. So I didn't want to quit. Yeah. How do you think that that mindset, those characters, those principles have served you as you've gone forward? I think it's just hard work. I think it's just, you know, what you do commit to, you should, you should do everything in your power to fully commit to. Um, so you don't, you know, just want to talk a big game and only back up 50% of it. I think, you know, what you commit to, you should fully commit to. Um, but I think it's just hard work. I think it's just a work ethic thing. I think, you know, my, my word would mean something to me and still does. So there was that summer where you're kind of in this dilemma, but you're, you stayed committed. Did you structure yeah. your next summers differently to not have those commitments or did you continue to prioritize work? I continue to prioritize work, but I tried to figure out more ways where I could be more productive during those open houses and make connections with, with other builders and figure out, okay, 
how did this, how did the listing agent get these listings? How, how do I flip it? And I realized that that was by finding land for the builders. And then a lot of people were just, just were scared about that process and didn't know if they could actually do it where I wasn't. I wasn't afraid to go knock on the developer's door. I wasn't afraid to start digging up permits and I wasn't afraid to then go and present that land to, to the home builders. And so I saw how you could get on the other side of it. And I wasn't afraid to try to pursue that. Do you have an idea of why there wasn't fear? I think it was just an ambition thing. I think there was fear. I, I, I should, I should back up. There was definitely fear, but uh, I, it didn't concern me or didn't stop me that much. And I think it was just a goal. I saw, I was telling this to someone the other day, but I was at a, I was at the largest privately owned firm in the state of Washington at that time. And the biggest ballers in that office walked in the office and out of the office with big plat maps underneath their arms. That's how you spotted a top producer. And so I was like, I know I can do that. Like I know it might take me time, but I know I can like get there and I can be that top producer. When you would walk into their office, this was back in the day when, you know, before everything was online, but their whole office would have plat maps like taped on the walls and you'd have like a green dot, you know, green tack for an active one, yellow for pending, like red for, so I was like, that's it. So I gotta be able to fix somehow I can, it might take me a while and it did take a while, but so I, I just, I think I just saw it. I was like, there's no reason I can't be that top producer. There's no reason like if I put in the time and so anyway, that it just, I saw it in front of me. So I knew it wasn't impossible. So obviously there's been a season with which pursuing builders and building has been crazy do you yeah. think we're still in that season? Um, I do. It's a tough landscape. Um, no builders were buying lots in the fourth quarter. Um, builders probably stopped building in the fourth quarter or, or sat on permits and didn't pull those permits. Um, it is picking back up. Um, but it's a tough thing to break into because I think if, an, if a broker was going to start today, their odds of being a top producer are better outside of probably better outside of new construction. I think the, the percentage of top producers that focus on new construction is really small. Uh, but it can also be consistent for a long time. So if it becomes your niche, it can be a, a rewarding one. But um, I would probably advise people these days to focus more on resale because there's just there's so much more abundance there. But Yeah, so the, the new construction uh, is probably a higher risk, high reward uh, type situation. Bingo. Okay. Yeah. Bingo. Cool. So then you, so let's talk about the investment side when you were working with investors and. Yeah. yeah, that was a lot of fun. So in like the, you know, 2010, 2011, the market had shifted incredibly, which created a lot of opportunities, but really from a volume standpoint, the banks became the new builders. The banks owned so much land and they owned so much real estate. They became sort of what we call it kind of the new builder in town. But that became a lot of fun because I got an opportunity to start working with a couple of investors and we would go, you could go look in, in East or South Tacoma. You could look at five or six houses and make offers on two or three of them and get two of them. They were like boarded up. Some of these houses were $50,000. And so that was a lot of fun. And, and the investors weren't making big, big bucks, but they were making, they were making a profit. Nobody ever went broke making a profit, but it was kind of cool because for a good two or three years there, there was a lot of inventory. So I would get the process down with an investor, like, okay, we found it. Here's how much he had to do his rehab. Here's what we sold it for. Here's what the product looked like. And then I would go to other guys. Like we had good relationships with, let's say the concrete company that worked for the new homeowners, or we had a good relationship with the framing crew or a good relationship with the door millwork company. And so we would go to them and say, Hey, I think you can do this too. You're not that busy with new home sales. I think you can do this too. So we would go and show them, here's what you can buy. 
Here's what one under construction looks like. And here's one that I have pending. And so we would get them excited about the process. And next thing you know, they became flippers. Hmm. And so it was kind of cool because if you can get to the point where you had five or six guys flipping and they're each doing maybe one to four at a time, you were staying pretty busy. So that was a lot of fun. So we did that for a good four or five years. And then things shifted back into new home sales because the bank sort of washed through most of their inventory and a lot of flippers showed up and were borrowing private money. And, you know, that, that kind of became a bit oversaturated. Yeah. And then all this, the prices go, are going way up just in general and then way more competition. And then all the yeah. TV shows are coming out and uh, yeah. blowing things up as well. Crazy. So I want to touch a little bit on your family dynamic. So your family was in the business, but nothing about what you've said so far indicates you were fed like a silver spoon. I mean, you were waiting tables, you were oh, having to find your own deals. So kind of talk to us, what have been the benefits of coming in as a, you know, second or third generation real estate professional? And, and what are some things that might've been even harder? There was definitely some benefits. Number one, I was comfortable in real estate. I learned how to drive a car at a new home community while my dad was sitting side there. Uh, my family was also in construction. They were home builders. So this, to some extent, the lingo or being comfortable on a job site or knowing the, the general process of a home being built or a subdivision being developed, I was somewhat comfortable with that. So that helped that I was sort of in that arena already. And there was a point in which I, I've told this to a few people, there was a point like three or four years in where I didn't think real estate was going to work. And I was just about to get married. And I remember that um, I had two, this was when the market got super, super tough. I had two deals that were supposed to close on the same day and I was flat broke. I literally had like no money. And I remember for whatever reason, both deals fell apart the day of closing. And I remember, this is no joke. I was like 22 years old in the office. I start crying. Hmm. I literally put my head down and started crying. And I remember my dad who worked at that office at the time came over to me and I saw this pep talk coming like a mile away. I'd seen it before. And he starts patting me on the back and he's like, Hey, it's going to be okay. Which made the whole thing like four times as bad because right. I started noticing I was crying. Yeah. yeah. And, and he says, Hey, look, he goes, uh, you're going to make it in real estate. I'm going to help you out. I'm going to give you a loan and you're going to, you're going to make it. And I said, dad, stop. I'm going to go work at Comcast. I'm going to go be a milkman. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to get a real job because this is not a real job. I need something yeah. that gives me a paycheck. And he made me stop because I'm, I'm literally not going to give you an option. I want you to write down right here what your bills are for next month. And so we, we I think we settled on $2,500. So he gave me $2,500. This was a typical father-to-son type loan. No interest, no payments, no term. Right. And that, that next year, I was number four at that company. We're the mm -hmm. largest firm in the state, largest privately owned firm in the state. And the year after that, I was number one. And of course, I paid my dad back. Yeah. So... That would be, a, there was several instances in that first four or five years where they definitely helped me, whether I was even just advertising some of their listings. There were several key moments where they did help me. But yeah, no, I mean, it was it was tough no matter what. It was probably tough on them too. Well, it's so interesting because pre-show you told me that they they encourage you not to get into real estate. Yeah. And yeah. so I would love to know, what do you, did, did they tell you why uh, or, or what, what's your interpretation of why they... Discouraging. You know, they thought I was too young. I was 19 in 2006. They thought I was too young. And they actually advised me as far as if I'm remembering back, they advised me to go work at a gym in the area and get sales experience selling gym mm. memberships. Right, go, go work at a gym for a year. Go get experience selling gym memberships. Like, here's a number. I know a guy. He'll hire you. And I just, I think I was too impatient for that. So I was like, no, I can, I'm just going to go get my license. Like I can start now. And I just kind of didn't take no for an answer and kept showing up to the office. Yeah. And, and in that time though, I would say I said yes to everything. 
It could have been an open house in the middle of nowhere. It could have been delivering flyers at midnight. I said yes to everything because I wanted to prove I was a hard worker. I was reliable. I was accountable. So, but um, yeah, I think they just in general thought I was too young and I needed to kind of gain some sales experience before getting into real estate. Which is crazy good wisdom. I mean, uh, I just spent a few days with my first real estate mentor who came from the gym industry and he's now sold over 7,000 homes with his team. Like crazy, crazy good wisdom. Yeah, that's crazy. But the fuel that you got obviously drove you. Now, what I'm curious about is why do you think there was a flip in your parents from, hey, you shouldn't do this, or at least not now, to your head's on the desk crying and they're saying, you're not quitting, we're giving you a loan. Yeah, I think that, uh, I think I had just sort of become invested in the company, you know, not financially, but just sort of, I think they had just gotten used to me being there and they had seen the hard work. And I think they saw charisma or they saw work ethic and they saw things like he has what it takes. Like we, you know, yeah. we've seen who makes it, who doesn't, we think he does have it. So I think it was probably more painful to them at that point to see me give up. Um, that that's as far as I, that, that'd be my best guess with that. Yeah. So then all of a sudden, it seems like after years, three, it sounds like three or four years of struggling and striving, they give you this $2,500 loan, which in the scope of things is nothing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you become number four producer. What happened? Yeah. I think it was just a lot. Well, first off, um, the market was really down at that point. So to be a number four producer probably wasn't something astronomical, although I did, mm. I'm sure I had a great year, but I think it was just a lot, of, you know, cause I had really put in the work I had done. I, I don't I bet you I'd done a thousand open houses. I had done so many open houses. I had written so many personal letters. I had reached out to so many people. So I think it was just sort of a small avalanche kind of just started to catch up to me. It was like, you had a really bad stretch. And I was like, man, all of a sudden, you know, a lot of this hard work did start to pay off. I was like, wow, all of a sudden now I have six active listings. This is really cool. And you're showing homes every weekend. And so I think just a lot of that hard work started to just kind of compile and show up, uh, which thankfully they didn't let me quit because otherwise I wouldn't have been there to really reap that. You'd be the milkman or, or the Comcast guy. Yeah, or some, or some... something. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so crazy to think about. What a great lesson too. Like, I mean, that one choice in life makes the difference of whether you're probably just eking out a sixty, eighty thousand dollar, hundred thousand yeah. dollar existence yeah. to Quality owning a brokerage. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, all right, well, things are picking up. So keep, keep telling us the story. Yeah, so I kind of at that point, um, started to figure out kind of two things. If I could consistently find land that home builders wanted to buy. And the other thing, which is just as important, hire really good side agents to sell the homes. Because remember in the beginning, I had learned or discovered I didn't want to sell those homes myself. I didn't want to be on site sitting in the model home. So if I could find land and I could hire really good side agents, I had myself a pretty good little small business. So that's what we kept doing. So can you get to the point where you're balancing one, two, or three new home communities at once? I think at one point I got to the point where I, was, I had nine active communities at once. Essentially with that initial 12-person team I talked about, you know, we were probably smaller than that at that point. But um, so those are two things I started to put together. If I could continue to find land and hire really effective side agents, you had a small business and a, and a pretty productive one. So that's when things started to kind of accumulate and you developed what your business plan was going to be. And you could have some consistency and yeah. Love it. And you had taken a mental snapshot. And I think this is a, truly one of the marks of a really like intelligent uh, person that's on the path to success 
is you take these snapshots of you see things that other people are doing and the results they're having and you're like, okay, I want that. And that becomes part of yeah. the fold, right? I mean, like you had that moment when you were sitting in the sites and you're this other guy's on the golf course and you're his minion and you're like, okay, yeah. I don't like being on this side of that, but I'm, I'm going to get to that side. Um, yeah. How much of that mm-hmm. was conscious all the way through? Um, I don't know how much of it was conscious. The funny thing is now looking back at it, there's a lot, there's probably more really good people at selling new homes and just working out of that model home. And mm. certainly way better than me. So that was the key is finding people that really enjoyed that because I didn't really enjoy that. And people that could that I could learn from, they could do it much better than me. So uh, I don't know how much of that was conscious or not. But I, I mean, I had to have been somewhat conscious because I knew I just I was too stir crazy to sit in the model homes and I didn't like that. Um, but yeah, it was I definitely yeah, I, I observed that in the beginning. I was like, man, how do I and it was not quick. You know, you're talking about a four or five year process to where I really am considerably on the other end of it. Yeah. It seems like everybody that has success in business has some superpower of some kind. What would you say if you had to say, what is Dennis's superpower? What would you say? You know, I don't really know what it is, but um, I thought it was funny there. I um, was on a really large team for a while um, and, and we, we basically only sold new homes, but uh, anyhow, and I remember at, at one point during a, a meeting we were having, they all kind of looked around and kind of said the same thing. And they're like, I really have, I have no idea how I could pinpoint what Dennis does that makes him successful. But the, the owner of the team said, I, if I could put one word on, I think it'd be likability. And I thought that was the funniest thing. So maybe it's likability. I don't know, but, uh, you know, I, I try to be, uh, have great communication. I think that's lacking in today's, uh, you know, today's real estate. It's probably always been lacking in the real estate industry, uh, professionalism, consistency, um, I, I'm generally an extremely nice person seven days a week. So, so a lot of times people like they'll be nice at work, but then they let it out at home or they'll be nice Monday through Friday, but then Saturday and Sunday, the real uh, byproduct of having to be nice. Is there like a, a philosophy or a thought process? Like what allows you to just be nice seven days a week, 24 seven? So, so you raise a really good point. And actually that's something that I need to be very conscious of because I think there's a lot of times too, where you sort of exhaust your willpower or mental energy at work and you get home and the family and kids can kind of look at you and go, well, where's the dentist that was on the podcast Yeah. or where's the dentist? So I'm very human with that. And I have to consistently remind myself, you know, how do you either, cause you can't bring the energy around the clock, right? So if I bring all my energy at the office and I'm getting deals done and I'm hiring people and we're having a lot of fun and you get home and you're exhausted, how do you bring that same energy or that same enthusiasm? So I'm not a Superman with that. It's something I got to be very conscious of. And I think it involves as much balance as you could possibly incorporate. Um, but yeah, that's a great question. And, it, and it's something I'm definitely guilty of. You have, you know, mm. and so I'm not nice. I mean, I am generally a very nice person, but how do you bring <laughs> that same enthusiasm and, and positive energy and because sometimes you, you have a really long day at the office, you can get home and, and a small thing can kind of make, kind of set you off or be the, the straw that broke the camel's back. So yeah, it's something I definitely have to be conscious of and how do you be that person all the time? And what I found too, as I've kind of gone through my journey is like the way that I look at people has changed. Like when I was younger, I looked at people differently than I do now. Like do you generally have the position that like everybody's amazing or like, like how do you think about people? Yeah, I try to, especially the older I get, 
I, I think I've actually gotten a little better at this. I think before you kind of looked at people a little bit more cynical. And I think mm. nowadays I'm, I, I try, and I think I'm, I'm probably too nice, but I try to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. You know, you try to look at everybody's human. And I think with kids too, because I, I don't know if you have, do you have kids? Four. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So <laughs> one thing that I think is the funniest thing, and it helps me put things in perspective is um, I, I like, I love to coach on my kids' teams. A lot of times I'm like the assistant coach or I, I, I'm such a busy body. I don't even sit in the stands anyway, so I might as well be helping. But <laughs> right. that, that makes me realize like, wow, they're freaking nine. They're 10. Yeah. Like they're just kids, you know, and it helps put it all in perspective. And so, and you know, when you, in looking at adults and stuff, you can say, you know, relax. Like they probably have a lot going on. Like, I might've reacted the same way or, you know, so I just try to be more conscious that everybody's human and, you know, and not take things personal, but. Love it. So what is the vision for you personally and for your brokerage in the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah, that's a great question. So we officially started as a standalone brokerage. We were a team before we started as a standalone brokerage in February of 2021 with about 12 people. Our goal in five years was to get to about 80 brokers, 75 to 80 and a half a billion annual sales. And so now as of today, we're around 70 brokers. And with the market having cooled, I'm definitely gonna need a hundred or probably over a hundred to get to the half a billion in sales. So that's our goal. So we just bought an office building for it. We outgrew the space we were leasing. So we bought an office building. It's not tremendously big, but much bigger than what we have now. We're gonna remodel that. I think that'll really help us. But that's our goal is to continue to recruit we have expanded big time into what we call the resale market, which is not new home sales. It's anything that's not new. Uh, we also sell a lot of land just by default, but um, so that's really our goal to get to a half a billion annual sales. And now it looks like that'll, that'll probably uh, take us what we'll need well over a hundred brokers to accomplish that. And really when I get to that point, really I'm not, cause I'm still transacting myself a fair amount. So really I'm transacting probably close to zero at that point, I would hope. But So essentially getting to the half a billion mark allows you to play just strategic Bingo. growth of the brokerage and, and skill. What do yeah. you see? Like, okay, so let's say you get to that point. Do you already have the next goalpost figured out? Mm -mm. No. Yeah. Uh -uh. I, think it'll come, though. I think it'll come fairly naturally, whether it's maybe a second office, a, a second location. Um, you know, real estate's really from the brokerage standpoint, it's an agent headcount game. So I think as long as you don't forget the game and you keep trying to improve at it, um, you're going to continue to grow. Yeah, absolutely. Dennis, thank you so much for sharing about your life and your business. Yeah. I mean, I just feel so great that you were vulnerable enough to share the head down crying oh. moment uh, yeah, with people. 100%. I think people can relate to that. I mean, especially now as the market's changing, I mean, the number of agents that seem to be getting out of the business that is like, hopefully if they listen to this and they decide not to, whatever it takes so they yeah. can stay in, you know, who knows what can happen. So guys, if you're out there listening, write down something you learned from this episode, share it with somebody you know so they can hold you accountable because freedom's acquired one action at a time. And if you take steps day by day before you know it, you'll be living a life of freedom. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode.